Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to the first session of the third seminar in the history of the book um, convened by the 15th century book trade and the, the visiting scholar center, the, or the Bodleian Center for the Study of the Book. Um, we have, you know, we open in a grand style with Earl Avens, who is curator of rare books and manuscript and the director of the Virginia Fox Stern Center for the History of the Book in the Renaissance at Johns Hopkins University. This is a very new and wonderful creation uh, within that university. And um, Earl is also, and most important for us today, the principal investigator of the archaeology of reading in early modern Europe, together with Anthony Grafton at Princeton and Matthew Simons at UCL. Uh, As you know, this is a five-year digital research collaboration involving the digitization, transcription, translation, encoding, and making searchable of 16th century marginalia from books in the libraries of John Dee and Gabriel Harvey, and is funded by the Mellon Foundation. Earl's most recent publication, um, co-edited with Walter Stevens, is Literary Forgery in Early Modern Europe, 1450-1800, published uh, just last year. And he's also the co-editor with Anne Blair at Harvard and Anthony Grafton at Princeton of Information Cultures, a new monographic series of the material histories of books and ideas, also um, published by uh, Hopkins Press. Um, we just want to add uh, maybe um, a publication that will come out in um, Catholic and recusant texts of the late medieval and early modern periods, a series of the Pontifical Institute of Medieval Studies in Toronto, because this bears uh, mentioning uh, here as the annotator um, he will speak to us about today, Lord William Howard, was the Earl of Arundel's sibling. Earl, Thank you. the floor is yours. Thank, Thank you. you, everybody, for coming. Um, if you want to come closer, feel free to do that, because all the action is going to be on the screen. Um, and I'm not going to read a paper to you. I'm going to share with you Um, something that actually isn't in the Archaeology of Reading project that Christina so kindly introduced. Um, I'm going to show you uh, what what is about to launch next week in in a conference at Senate House in London uh, next Friday, which is the culmination of five years of work um, on uh, these uh, marginalia and uh, making them searchable and accessible uh, from dispersed libraries, which uh, no longer are accessible in a physical, single physical place. Uh, but I'm only just going to show you very briefly so you get a sense of the environment in which we could think of actually doing work on what is one of the most significant annotated books that I've seen from the Renaissance period to appear in a very long time, which is uh, Lord William Howard's profoundly uh, annotated copy of Montaigne's essays uh, in the Florio translation of 1613. Um, and so... Uh, this is just, uh, really, I'm just trying to promote my project here just briefly, um, but also to give you a sense of where to think about 
this other book. Um, I'll open up one of these books, Gabriel Harvey and John Dee, two of the most um, avid annotators uh, uh, of the Renaissance period, also had the absolute fantastic um, uh, luck of having excellent handwriting, which means that we can actually read the scribble in the marginalia, unlike so many of the incunabula that, um, that Christina and her colleagues work on. Some of it's very good, but some of it's utterly unreadable. Um, and that is one of the criteria for our project of, is excellent handwriting. And it turns out that Lord William Howard also had very good handwriting, so that's very good for us. Um, unfortunately, if you uh, write like I do, no one's going to study you 500 years later because they can't read your handwriting. Um, so we collected about three dozen books, the most heavily annotated and most interesting to us books, um, uh, from Dee's and Harvey's library. Um, and I'll show you one example, Thomas Tusser's Points of Hus Good Husbandry, one of the most popular um, works of the Elizabethan period. It's actually, if it works, uh, it does. Um, and... Uh, this is a book that actually was in private hands. It was in Bob Peary's collection until the auction just a couple of years ago. And uh, Princeton bought it, digitized it, gave it to us. Our team transcribed all the marginalia and made it all searchable in six months, which was pretty cool um, because it's one of the most heavily annotated and one of the only works of verse uh, in the collection. Um, this connection is a little slow. It normally works much faster, um, zipping between pages, but um, as you can see, you can really get into the grain of these texts with our viewer. Um, you can even do wheelies with it if you want to, which is very important when you look at things like our Domenici Guicciardini, which, in which Harvey actually literally writes a 360-degree marginalia um, uh, uh, to manipulate these things. But it, uh, you know, it used to be that digital humanities was all about taking pictures of books, but actually one of the things that uh, this project contributed to the so-called triple IF uh, uh, environment, the, uh, the API that we use to view rare books online, uh, this through the, the Mirador viewer, is to add um, text panels to these, uh, image, uh, 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 this image technology. So you'll see on the right um, uh, complete transcriptions and where relevant translations of all the marginalia with, with links um, to names, peoples, and places, and so forth. And what th that's one very nice thing, but the other is the search. So you can search all the marginalia, uh, marks, underlined printed text, textual marks, uh, Harvey's astrological symbol of marginalia. You can filter and search by all of those things um, through advanced search options. You can actually look for any number of, you could even do a history of underlining, if you wish, uh, uh, with, this, with this resource. Um, and just to um, toss, um, let's see if the word corn brings anything up. Um, that takes us to page three. That's actually where we already were. But um, you can actually also search um, across the entire collection. So you can actually look for all versions, uh, all instances, for example, um, of, uh, let's see, uh, war. If I can learn how to type on this machine. And you'll actually get um, gobs of hits and... Um, you can just click on the button, you just click on the image and it takes you to it and uh, to the specific page and then you can find, uh, very often Harvey uses the Mars symbol when he's describing war. Um, and you can, you can open this up in um, multiple windows and look at multiple books at the same time and so forth. So I encourage you all to go to www.bookwheel.org, um, but not before next Friday. <laughs> because it won't be as spectacular, um, especially now that we have an, uh, something called uh, export data export. We can actually export um, an HTML document that will give you a list of direct hits to all of the things you found 
that you can save onto your laptop and then you basically can just click on them and they take you to that book and that image instantly. So you can, can retrace the, the breadcrumbs in your walking through the, 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 the maze, so to speak, of these books. Um, I won't go into any further detail except to say that with this kind of technology, we can think about doing things with marginalia, massive data sets, in a sense, in the humanities um, that we haven't been able to really do before, um, before now. And so with that, I'm going to close this, uh, that environment and go into a slideshow on in a completely different book. And I chose a rather eccentric title, which I'm grateful that it didn't scare a bunch of people away, uh, Bumblebee Witches and the Reading of Dreams. But these are some of the things that happen in the margins of this spectacular book, um, which has been in private hands until January of last year uh, and was fortunately acquired by Johns Hopkins University, uh, which is in the process of completely conserving the chippy pages where we're losing, potentially losing some of the marginalia and will completely digitize um, and hopefully integrate into the archaeology reading environment yet another reader, Lord William Howard. Um, and that's what I will, uh, I will try to talk about now. And the fact that one of the reasons why it's such a spectacular book is, is because it's Montaigne's essays. What a wonderful starting, jumping off point for exploring the history of reading and an imaginative uh, engagement with, um, with literature, with texts, um, uh, particularly such a book as, as Montaigne, which was in so many ways a conversation piece. Um, we have so many records of Montaigne being read in groups, uh, in, in, um, in communal contexts. But it begins as a tale of two tower libraries, which is actually kind of interesting. At least it was a surprise for me. I didn't know this. Um, many of us uh, here who work on the early modern period will know Montaigne's uh, famous tower, uh, unfortunately now denuded of its rare books, uh, the magnificent library that inspired these uh, loci communes to be um, engraved and uh, into the rafters of uh, Montaigne's favorite quotations from ancient Greek uh, and Latin and biblical texts. Um, you, uh, somebody has actually taken digital technology to reimagine uh, the books. It doesn't do much for us except provide a kind of ambiance for uh, what Montaigne might have experienced. I, I, what's not missing is a comfortable chair, uh, uh, so I don't think it's very convincing. But I would suggest to you that I think that marginalia can also help us to reimagine a library uh, and uh, not only a library's existence as a document of the interests and the, uh, the possibilities of the intellectual life of individuals who have access to it, but also that marginalia help us to reimagine the libraries wherein these notes were taken. One of the things that's so interesting about marginalia studies when you're working with in multiple books or, or, or books, uh, even an individual book from a, that was annotated within the ambit of a great library, are all the manifold, uh, the manifest cross-references, um, the dialogue that's actually happening. We, we call our project, our, 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 our logo for the AOR project is the book wheel, the famous Romelli book wheel, um, because what we've learned by working with marginalia, and many of you who work on marginalia well know, is that this is not a single book in front of you as it is on this table, but you have the whole library uh, arrayed. You, you need a book wheel because to operate a library like an, a good early modern reader, um, you need to look at lots of books at the same time and, and, and sometimes with multiple people. And sometimes those records actually get recorded in the margins of books. Fortunately for us, a great deal of Lord William Howard's uh, library of printed books is intact in two locations. Uh, uh, largely at University of Durham uh, and also at St. John's Cambridge. The irony here, I feel so uh, funny about this, is that 
um, your Bodley librarian is an expert on Lord William Howard's medieval manuscript collection, which has been dispersed to the four corners. It's sort of like Harvey's and Dee's libraries, you know, the Luttrell Psalter and some of the greatest manuscripts of the, of the Middle Ages because uh, uh, Lord William was an antiquary as well as a collector of, of, of modern and contemporary books. The other tower library is at Naworth Castle, just near Lanarkost Priory, just uh, below Hadrian's Wall in, uh, in, in the northern parts of, of England. And this is actually Naworth Castle, where this book was read and annotated. And it's not often that you can actually say that book was annotated in that tower, and actually we even know which room, um, uh, with where all the books were until they, uh, the, they were dispersed, uh, largely in 1992. Um, that's Naworth Castle today. You can, uh, you can visit it. It's one of the uh, wonderful um, medieval piles of the, of the, of the north of England. Um, and Lord William loved his books so much that he put them very close to his bedroom, uh, so uh, very convenient. Um, you, you have to walk uh, through this uh, gigantic door um, with its thunder-grating hinges. Um, the the, the Naworth Castle, to give you some sense of, uh, of ambiance, was described by a 19th century writer. The whole house is a specimen of ancient inconvenience. The whole internal contrivance seemed only intended for keeping an enemy out <laughs> not in letting, necessarily in letting friends in, though we know that this was a destination for antiquaries from all over England, including some of uh, 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 Lord William Howard's close friends, Sir Robert Cotton, William Camden. Uh, he actually bought several manuscripts from John Dee, who I mentioned earlier, um, as well as John Stowe, William Lambard. I mean, these are the great antiquarian figures of the period. Um, and that actually was what the library was, the printed book library, um, until it was uh, for the auction catalog uh, of 1992 when it was sold. Sorry, that's a little white strip, a, a mailing address for um, uh, a destination. So this collection of about 300 books, some of which are also, thankfully, heavily annotated, um, uh, are largely in one place at Durham. Um, and uh, I have spent almost no time with them yet. I, I actually will be um, next year. But let me tell you a little bit about Lord William Howard. Um, I actually came across him first through your Bodleian librarian when we had a conversation 20 years ago. Uh, um, but Lord William Howard was the youngest son of the fourth Duke of Norfolk, uh, famous, uh, the, one of the most uh, uh, well, famous figures of the Elizabethan period. Uh, he was also the uh, sibling of the Earl of Arundel. Um, both of those men died in the tower, um, one for his, his implication in, the, uh, in a plot against the Queen, the Earl of Arundel, um, convicted of treason for promoting the idea of saying masses in, this, in the tower for the success of the approaching Spanish Armada. Uh, and I'm just wrapping up a bio, a, an edition of a unique manuscript biography of him um, with colleagues who are editing The Countess of Arundel's uh, Life, which is actually written with it and um, by a Jesuit biographer in the 1630s. Um, this picture, by the way, is a, just an antiquarian sort of imagination. It's the oratory, which is the little chapel just adjoining the tower library at Naworth. Um, what's very interesting, of course, is that Lord William also did time in the tower. He was, uh, uh, he was suspected of also being involved with his brother in the Throckmorton plot. And um, it was uh, spent uh, uh, multiple months there, was released, and then re-imprisoned when his brother tried to escape England for religious causes to France to uh, ostensibly to enjoy the liberty of conscience, but uh, possibly to join William Allen and create a, 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 another invasion, uh, an invasion to precede the Spanish Armada. 
Um, and so this, these are the Howards. These are the, what are the most distrusted families in the Elizabethan period, um, largely as a result of the, of, the, um, uh, of the unpleasant history of treason that is associated with Lord, uh, Lord William Howard's ancestors, his father, his grandfather, his great-grandfather, uh, and so on. But we don't have time to talk about all of that. Um, he married in childhood uh, his half-sister, Elizabeth Dacre, who was one of the great heiresses, along with uh, Anne Howard, the Countess of Arundel, who married uh, Philip, uh, his half-brother, um, the great uh, inheritors of the Gisland, uh, the Gilsland Dacre estates in the north, which is massive, which includes the honor of, of Naworth. Um, he was com- Lord William was completely distrusted by James and never entrusted with uh, uh, any positions of, of significance, unlike his uncle, Henry Howard, um, unlike his other half-brother, Thomas Howard, who became earls. So he spent, essentially, uh, the first uh, third of the 17th century largely in rustic retirement in his tower library in the north of England. So what a wonderful juxtaposition, the the two of these. Um, Just to give you a sense of how small the world is, um, in 1599, he hosted uh, Cotton and Camden on a two-week tour of Hadrian's Wall. Um, We know from one of the marginalia in this Montaigne that Lord William visited uh, Cotton's library because he mentions looking at the Lanarkos Chronicle, which Cotton owned in one of the marginalia, which was inspired by something that Montaigne had said about um, uh, uh, murdering kings, which is a relevant subject for uh, this family. Um, smallest of small worlds, if you really wanted your, your child to learn Italian or French, you would send that young person to John Florio, the translator of Montaigne, um, uh, to, to learn those languages. And, uh, in fact, uh, Cotton himself studied with Florio while he was translating Montaigne's essays. Um, And, in fact, Lord William's children had been married into the Cotton family. So it was a very, very small world, actually, uh, uh, an interesting world to consider. What was also interesting about this environment is that this, this manuscript, the manuscript annotations, are in multiple hands. In fact, there are two distinct hands that appear most commonly, and those appear to be Lord William's hand and those of Nicholas Roskarek, who was uh, a significant hagiographer, the Cornish hagiographer, um, uh, who was um, also did time, as it were, uh, in the tower. And in fact, that's where he and Lord William met. Um, Nicholas Roskarek was in prison for priest harboring um, in 1580, and, and towards the end of his uh, imprisonment, he met Lord William. They became lifelong friends, um, Roskarek eventually was given a pension by uh, uh, the nephew of Lord William, Thomas Howard, the collector Earl of Arundel, uh, and he spent the rest of his life, 1607 until his death in 1634 at Naworth Castle. The the Montaigne that we're looking at was printed in 1613, Um, so it it immediately coincides. Um, I don't know, has anyone here seen the Langdale Rosary or know it well over at the V&A? Uh, I know you should raise your hand, Peter and, and James. Yes, you know it. But if anyone else, if you haven't, go see it because it's one of the really great objects of of the turn of the 16th century. And uh, Lord William actually added beads to it, um, commemorating saints whose first names began with William. And he added a bead to, uh, in honor of Roskarek's patron saint and Deliant. And uh, this is the rosary. That's how close they were. Um, co-religionists. Um, members of the same household, um, antiquaries through and through, uh, and uh, also eager readers of Montaigne. Uh, Lord William Howard is, is steeped in uh, 19th century romanticism. Uh, this is the, uh, an image of the, of the uh, chapel, so-called chapel, 
um, with this wonderful, it, it has a genealogical tree emblazoned with the Dacre and Howard arms and a, uh, just a gigantic tree of Jesse. All of this burned, of course, um, and is lost. This is all just sort of um, very Sir Walter Scott kind of um, ways of thinking about the past. Also a wonderful uh, long gallery filled with uh, family portraits and their medieval honor of, of swords and uh, spears and, and, and uh, uh, engraved armor and the rest. Um, uh, it's described as containing a highland claymore, saddles, breastplates, a boar spear, the, the cradle, the saddle, and the chest, uh, the chest and gloves of broad belt of Lord William. And uh, he is called Belted Will. Um, very famously in The Lay of the Last Minstrel. I don't know if anybody knows that poem, but it used to be an extremely popular poem. And uh, Belted Will is, is this wonderful figure of the North who sort of hangs reavers for, uh, before breakfast and uh, can t- takes care of the, the wilds of the North um, for the crown. Um, costly as his garb, his hemp Flemish rough, fell over his doublet shaped or buff, and so forth and so on. He's belted Will because he's always wearing his belt with his sword around, ready to get on a horse and to do justice. Um, and so you can see there's a lot of romance. The, 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 much of the uh, collection burned in 1844, except one of the only things that survived was the library, which is not often the story. And, but it's one of the reasons we're, we're able to be here today is that, that the, the tower... Um, on the right, the one that's not flaming is, the, is, is where the library lived. Lord William was a great bibliophile. He gave a gift of, um, uh, of a large number of books to uh, St. John's College, his uh, alma mater. Uh, he was forced to attend there by Lord Burley when he was his ward. Um, and you can see the Howard arms emblazoned on the bindings. I've already described the fact that Lord William had one of the great medieval manuscript collections, over 128 manuscripts, um, including 15% or so coming from recognized monastic and dissolved uh, ecclesiastical collections, which is very large um, uh, for our purposes. I I won't go into much more detail. He uh, did, however, also collect printed books. Uh, And uh, one of the things that uh, Richard Ovenden has written very recently about in an article on Lord William's manuscripts is that they're not annotated. Thank God he didn't annotate them because they're absolute works of art. John Dee, however, had absolutely no problem annotating medieval manuscripts with his notes because he thought they were so, his ideas were so important. Um, even has his own genealogical tree with his marginalia on them, connecting him to Queen Elizabeth um, through uh, ancient ancestors going back to you know, the, the, the mists of history. Um, Lord William did promote the publication of Antiquarian Things in 1592. He got, managed to, to legally print a Catholic book by printing an Antiquarian uh, Chronicle. Uh, but his library is over 300 titles that survive. That's quite a lot. It's not the 2,000 or so books that we might, some people think, Harvey owned or D, the D owned, but it's still an extremely large collection for the time. Many of the books in his collection are books that, that Montaigne had in his library. Um, but also he possessed uh, Incunabula um, and uh, also the ultra-modern, hyper-Catholic, Tridentine, pro-Jesuit literature that you weren't supposed to be able to get your hands on in the Elizabethan Jacobean periods. Um, uh, the Howards were the great, and in fact, Lord William Howard was one of the greatest sponsors of the Jesuits in England during this period. In fact, the Countess of Arundel um, uh, gave a, an endowment of 2,500 pounds to found a, a tertian ship in Ghent for the Jesuits. And they're serious, seriously um, all very Catholic and, and, and very much doing um, things that were not um, considered uh, positively by the crown. Um, 
what are some of these books? The Roman Martyrology in the 1589 edition, a complete edition of Baronio, Brent's translation of the um, history of the Council of Trent. He has a Tridentine catechism. This is, he, he was an antiquary, patriotically collecting evidence of where the Catholic Church was before Luther uh, in England, but he was also collecting the, the international literature of the Tridentine Church. And uh, it is very interesting to think about that when you read Montaigne's essays. Um, some of the other books, uh, this is how you know they're William Howard's, uh, largely because they're, they're in the Howard Collection, as it's called, at Durham, but also signed by him with his initials and his motto. Uh, here is uh, Patristic Text Orosius Against, um, uh, against uh, Heresy. One of the most interesting books in the Durham Collection and one of the most heavily annotated books of Lord Williams is his Calvin. So he, uh, you know, keep your friends close and your enemies <laughs> closer, as it were. Um, I have not spent much time with him, uh, with this one, but it's inscribed with a rather more hostile motto uh, uh, that he, draw, he drew from Chrysostom. Let him that think he stands take heed lest he fall. Um, an admonition to John Calvin. But as you can see, there's a great deal um, to unpack in the margins of this book. And finally, let me get to the book itself. This is the artifact that I has brought us all here today, a nice early English binding, um, antiquarian things uh, laid in, all the, many of the book plates of the previous owners, scandalous pencil annotations by a 20th century owner in an eccentric hand. Um, but here it is, Florio's Essays of 1613, um, with the far superior to Shakespeare's uh, engraved portrait um, of the, the great translator Florio um, in 1611. What is super interesting is that, of course, Florio himself, when he returned to England, was um, employed immediately in the French embassy uh, between 1583 and 84 to, um, to teach um, the daughter of the French ambassador. Um, the, the French embassy is about five blocks from Arundel House, where Lord William and Philip Howard um, spent the year 1583-84, uh, much of the year, in London, um, part of it uh, in house imprisonment. For being uh, for implication in the Throckmorton plot, um, in fact, the, the, we know from most of the records that survive of Philip Howard that the most welcome guest at Arundel House was the French ambassador. There's quite an intimate connection. It's 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 irresistible. Uh, it's, it's 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 still a speculation, but it's irresistible to think. You know, yes, Florio was dining with Lord William at this house um, uh, decades before his translation of Montaigne came out. Um, it's certainly not unlikely. Uh, for, the, for the, these um, eminent figures. Now, there's a very useful survey done by William Hamlin of, uh, of editions of Florio's Montaigne. Um, we have, uh, he's gone through hundreds of them, and uh, the most heavily annotated of the Florio translations has about 300 distinct marginalia, that are distinct ideas, in a sense, um, uh, in the text, um, which compares to our Montaigne, which has 900 distinct marginalia. Um, so this is the most heavily annotated copy of Montaigne in the English language that we are aware of. Um, and not all the annotations that uh, Hamlin's book looked at are obviously contemporary, but certainly this one, this one is, which makes it an extraordinary discovery, a, a extraordinary book, uh, especially since it's been in private hands until just now. Again, um, Lord William's favorite motto, Merces Amoris Amor, love is love's reward. Here you have William Howard's autograph sort of crossed out um, which was not uncommon when books traded hands, but we don't know. Um, but there's more evidence uh, here uh, because it's also initialed, and in fact, 
a number of his books are inscribed by his daughter, Mary Howard, which is super, super duper interesting. Um, and um, as you can see here, uh, with that Erosius, there's a, a separate inscription referring to uh, Biondo and, and other historians, uh, uh, chroniclers um, in this book with Mary Howard's signature. Uh, there is, uh, I showed this to a, a wonderful uh, a colleague uh, from North Carolina who's writing a, a, a biography of Chapman, and uh, she said, by Jove, that's Chapman on the title page. Um, and indeed it is, it's, and indeed it represents a variant on Chapman's continuation of Marlowe's hero and Lander, um, instead of saying, um, uh, without preserve of virtue, it says, without respect to virtue. Um, it's funny how these little, these little inscriptions can just uh, pop up in the middle of nowhere and then cause us to wonder about the, uh, the integrity of the actual text um, as it was transmitted uh, in real time, as it were. And you see, again, another attempt, probably by Mary Howard, but we're not sure of the same initial phrase. Um, what's also remarkable is a neighbor of William Howard's, Lady Anne Clifford, the great learned um, reader uh, shown here in childhood and in adulthood, surrounded by books, much as Lord William, much as Montaigne, much as Dee and Harvey, um, uh, there is a record in her diary um, uh, of being in frequent company with Lord William and their mutual friends, Rivers and Marsh. And on 9 November 1616, I sat at my work and heard Rivers and Marsh read Montaigne's essays, which book they have read almost this fortnight. That's a wonderful little piece of information uh, to have. It's uh, perfectly timed um, to when Roscarek and uh, Lord William uh, uh, could have been in contact with this Lady Anne Clifford's. One of her favorite things was to be read too. Um, and indeed, that is an important part of thinking about marginalia. There are also poems. Um, there's a full contemporary transcription of a political poem by Richard Corbett, um, uh, which did not, was not printed until decades later. Um, so we, we have evidence of its circulation. It's interesting because uh, Corbett was a supporter of the Duke of Buckingham. And in fact, when he was attacked by Parliament and Buckingham, uh, when he proposed the revival of Society of Antiquaries, put Lord William's name first in the list of members. So again, these, these, these connections are really quite extraordinary um, from a single, coming from a single book. How did we, how did he finally, how did he read this book? There's a very famous passage for those who aren't as familiar with, Lord, with Montaigne's essays. Uh, Arnott, uh, he describes, Montaigne describes his essays as monstrous bodies patched and huddled up together of diverse numbers without any certain or well-ordered figure, having neither order, dependency, or proportion by causal, but causal and framed by chance. Now, I can think of no better description of an annotated book, as well as indeed a book of essays, and indeed the first book of essays to have been published, but it's a wonderful description of what is actually happening um, in this book. Um, and in fact, one of the other wonderful things about this book is that uh, Howard and Russ Carrick uh, began many of the chapters that they read intensely with little critical summaries of what they think about them, which is very useful to have, uh, including um, including uh, this chapter of friendship, you know, the most one of the most important concepts on Machitia, of of sharing books uh, and ideas. Uh, this chapter like is like most of the tracts and treatises which I've seen of this argument um, promoting universal friendship. They hark perfect amities to such height as they make it a castle in the air. Uh, these are wonderful. That's a nugget uh, uh, in and of itself. Um, 
X marks the spot in the table of contents for what seemed to be interesting in red. You could almost imagine, and again, this is pure speculation, but after dinner, when you're in the wilderness of the north in Nowarth Castle, what are you going to do? Well, what chapter of Montaigne should we read tonight? Uh, uh, it's certainly a nice uh, thought, but there is evidence of, of, of this. Um, and indeed, once they get to the third book, uh, uh, they become almost like a freshman in college who highlights every line of every page of their textbooks because they're so interesting. They X out every, every chapter of book three and know that the, the um, apology for Raymond Saban is not heavily annotated. It's too long to be read. Um, uh, uh, it's one of the longest essays, if not the longest. Now, one of the things that we do with marginalia studies that we instinctively do is we look for voices of autobiography. We, we, we want to believe that, that there's an authenticity that exists in the manuscript. Those of us who worked intensively, I, I've yet to meet anyone who doesn't feel this way, but if anyone has other thoughts about this, I welcome them. Some sense of, of, of the voice coming out of the text, uh, out of the, and indeed out of the responses to the printed text. Now, Lord William Howard was made the ward of Lord Burley, as was his brother, after they executed his father, um, beheaded him in Tower Hill in 1572 after holding him on for an indefinite period following his, his attainder um, for six months before he, he could have been beheaded at any time uh, during that period. Um, it's actually pretty interesting because one of the most heavily copied correspondences in Elizabethan and early Stuart letter, book, uh, letter books are the final letters that the Duke of Norfolk wrote to his children from the tower. Um, this is Lord Burley, who was not much loved by the Howards. Um, and here in Lord William's Montaigne, in what is, I believe, Lord William's hand, um, there is a reference to Treasurer Burley. This book is filled with contemporary references to Thomas More, to Erasmus, but also to people living, as we'll see in the, in, as I wrap this up. Um, uh, there's a passage in Montaigne about not having major, not, not having elaborate funerals, and Burley was sort of famous for this. It's interesting because there's no pejorative, there's no invective here. It's simply a, an historical uh, extension of of, of of Montaigne's observations about funerals with the anecdote of Burley. So there are moments where the life actually touches and nowhere more poignantly than in this note, which made my jaw drop when I saw it. It's apparently the unique source of an anecdote um, in the section of sleeping in Montaigne's essays, in which it is reported that the Duke of Norfolk set his alarum for the night, of his the night before his execution to be at 4 a.m. and the servant decided to take pity on his master, um, perhaps not thinking there would be consequences and did not wake, wake him until five. Uh, that, that's not known except in this little marginalia <laughs> in this one book written by this, the, the very son of the man, um, again, in what we believe to be Lord William Howard's hand from, from all of the comparisons. Um, I, I used the phrase bumblebee witches, which is a wonderful sort of Midsummer Night's Dream kind of idea, but it appears in, this, in the marginalia in the section of the force for the imagination. Um, actually, uh, Lord William is remembering, we believe, his actual participation in the Carlisle Assizes of 1617. He dates the note and describes that it was on this date that uh, a girl confessed openly that she with other witches had gone under the shapes of bumblebees into eggshells into the Isle of Man and that she had crossed the sands at full sea riding upon a bur tree or an elder stick. 
and, and, and so forth. This is all about Montanian skepticism and so forth. But it's a wonderful passage from this moment in history. Does it, does it unlock the secrets of Lord William's mind? No, but it demonstrates how, how Montaigne is a jumping off point for this sort of anecdotal imagination and, and this, this dense recording of these passages in the marginalia. Um, I also mentioned the reading of dreams. Uh, here is also another anecdote by a contemporary of Lord William, Sir Peter Salterstone, uh, who uh, was having an affair with a woman who um, decided to stab him in his dream. And when he awoke, uh, his blouse was bloody, but his arm was not scarred. Um, this is, uh, comes directly out of, uh, this is a Lucretian passage. Um, it's a Lucretian passage in the inspiration for Montaigne, and it's Lord William extending that uh, in, a, in a contemporary anecdote in the marginalia. These are very rare sorts of things to find. Um, uh, also, it possesses, as we get toward the end, an incredible, mind-boggling mess of an index, which actually gives us a sense of the order in which the chapters were read and annotated, because the index of words uh, begins in Medius race in uh, Two, four, page 244 or so, and then it jumps to page one, and then it goes to others. And these roughly correspond to the X marks, the spot in the, uh, in the table of contents, so it becomes a very interesting um, uh, set of loci communes, so to speak. What's super interesting is that uh, also some of these, margin, these, these, these index notes index the marginalia, which index the text. Um, others... Index don't index the marginalia, but index the underlined text only, which is interesting. What indexing means? It kind of uh, becomes other composite. Um, Lord William hated lawyers uh, because he spent 25 years suing um, people for his estates, his wife's estates, um, and he was especially chuffed by this note about King Ferdinand not sending any lawyers to the New World so they couldn't sue each other. And he said, in a, in a rather cheeky note above, he says, uh, would we did this in England, our lawyers. Um, and then I, I find other references in the index that refer to pages that have no marginalia at all and actually don't have any reference in the printed text that I can tell that makes any difference. So it's a lot of work to be done on trying to figure out precisely what this is which is what makes the horse race, of course. And then a second index of the long, of the long anecdotes themselves. Yeah. Um, and these, uh, of course, demonstrate that one of the primary purposes of this sort of almost palimpsestic text is to, um, is, to, uh, is to actually make these anecdotes that are extensions of Montaigne, uh, prostheses of these uh, observations of Montaigne, accessible in and of themselves for future use, including an extremely interesting reference to um, an apocryphal story of how Sir Thomas More first met Desiderius Erasmus uh, incognito. Um, apparently, according to this anecdote, um, Thomas More encountered Erasmus. Um, uh, he heard this man starting to recite the poetry of Euripides, uh, and um, Thomas More said, oh, either you are a devil or you are Erasmus. Uh, Eureka. Um, this, this doesn't appear very widely, this anecdote. It does show up in um, Crescare Moore's uh, biography of his ancestor, um, but uh, actually it, does show up, it doesn't show up in Harpsfield or, or any of the other major lives of Moore, by the way. So this is just super useful as an historical document. It does show up, however, interestingly, in the only surviving literary manuscript to which Shakespeare put his pen, the Thomas More play, which actually reworks this anecdote in, in, a, in a variant to the version that is given by Lord William in the margin of his book. Um, I'm not, 
I'm not going to connect William Shakespeare, but we know Shakespeare read Florio. It's a very small world um, that this book, um, this text, and these these data, in a sense, existed. It is super metatextual in, in a lot of ways. Here in this passage, Montaigne, uh, in his Of Physiognomy, writes, as by some might be said of me, that here I have but gathered a nosegay of strange flowers and have put nothing of mine into it but the thread to bind them. Which is a wonderful, self-deprecating Montaignean remark. But it also, I think, aptly describes the activity, perhaps, of what's going on in the margins of this book. Um, and here, uh, uh, this is actually also, we thank Lord William's hand, um, writing, uh, essentially reading Montaigne's writing about his own writing in print. Uh, these are the kinds of moments that can appear in a heavily annotated book. But I think the best of all uh, is this reference um, of experience, one of the last uh, chapters um, is not the chiefest and most famous knowledge of our ages to know how to understand the wise? Is it not the common and last scope of our study? And indeed, I would hope that at least it's part of our study uh, in the academy. To which uh, Lord William responds, No, a good scholar and a witty man that would not say that the necessariest sort of a good scholar is to be able nowadays, readity to turn his books, which is, I imagine, how uh, Lord William read uh, his Montaigne. It's filled with hundreds of cross-references um, to books we know he owned and are sitting in Durham and at St. And, and, and John's College, Cambridge, and also to books that we don't know exist uh, anymore at all. And so I end with questions rather than answers because we've just gotten this book. We're just digging into it. Um, how do you read a deeply annotated book? Do you really read it in the same way that Lord William and Russ Carrick read Montaigne, or do you do something else with it, um, such as they did with their index? How do we properly read out and extract from this book what was so heavily and carefully read into it uh, when we know the contents of the library in which it was annotated? Uh, and then finally, should we, should we consider this book the centerpiece of a library? Very often, certain books become centerpieces in early modern libraries. Many of you will know the inspiration for the archaeology of reading in, in print, which is Tony Grafton and Lisa Jardine's wonderful article uh, studied for action, how Gabriel Harvey read his Livy. Well, we've transcribed the Livy, and it's in the archaeology of reading, and is by far the most heavily annotated book, over 10,000 annotations uh, in a single book, not just 900, but 10,000. Um, it became, in a way, the centerpiece of trying to unlock how Gabriel Harvey read his Livy and what I would suggest to you as a parting thought here, as we look at things like the archaeology of reading and imagine working with this material in a digital environment where we can search it, how we can begin to ask ourselves, how did these people read their libraries? And not just individual books, you know, one at a time. How did they operate, operationalize the artifacts in their libraries um, to create meaning for themselves and their friends and their families in the early modern period? Thank you. Uh, thank you so much. And uh, before leaving the floor to questions in English and French pertinent uh, uh, scholarship, I would just make a comment on um, methodology. Um, I was very pleased when Earl got in touch uh, uh, last term because I always thought that uh, our two databases are complementary. As you know, the 15th century book trade 
runs the material evidence in Cunabula, where we capture um, uh, evidence of marginalia systematically, uh, but superficially, um, and we try to offer a typology of marginalia. And, um, and I always admired the, this uh, opportunity to go deeper in the understanding um, as you are able to do with these, these books. And our, uh, one of the ambitions is one day, of course, to uh, find uh, some wonderfully annotated, very, very meaningfully owned uh, incunable that we can finally pass on um, from one database to the other so that you will be able to go deeper into that. Um, I think this, um, uh, the database is, uh, and, and of course the scholarly and the thinking behind it is absolutely exemplary. And um, it, I wonder whether you uh, are familiar with a proto-example of, of this, um, which was developed, I think, maybe 15 years ago um, by the university in Milan. The Catholic, it was the um, professor of the Department of Philology, Frasso, from the Catholic University, who um, developed this marginalia in incunabula um, based on the incunabula at the Biblioteca Trivulziana in Milan. Mm. And uh, of course, today is impossible to be seen. It's kind of, um, uh, well, not available on the web, and maybe it's not been for a while. And, uh, and, I'm, and I'm trying now to see that it's kept in some computer somewhere because it would be a terrible disaster that is the, the, the old work is lost and um, what they did was like you hear but with the technology probably 15 years ago um, transcribe uh, uh, translate and comment on every marginal annotation uh, on uh, mostly humanists uh, and classics uh, uh, text and um, a fantastic exercise that maybe was too much of a you know, early times and maybe too difficult to manage. While uh, I think you showed us that not only you're able to manage this material, which is so complex, and to make it searchable for historical research, but um, I, I'm also very impressed in the way you have been experimenting with new tools within the IIIF um, for text and not only and not only images and um, do you think this will open the way to more scholarship on oh, I hope so. text and marginalia? <laughs> <laughs> I think one of the, our challenges has been that it's incredibly daunting to work with this material it's just a massive amount of, of data um, we have hundreds of thousands of discrete marginalia across the 33 books in archaeology reading but, you know, if you go to Trinity College, Cambridge, and you, go, you ask to see the adversaria of card file, you'll find references to lots and lots of marginalia in books all over that library. And if you go to catalog records uh, in WorldCat and all the world over, you'll see occasionally references to annotations or to notes, these tantalizingly abstruse records that it, it, this could be Shakespeare's copy of the King James Bible, for God's sake. <laughs> but... but um, but we, won't, we just don't know because there are no cataloging standards for marginalia, even in the, um, the standard nomenclature um, of, 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 of basic mark records for, for books. 
Um, I would also just like to, uh, so I would, I would respond by saying it's just, we need to do something to get into this. And one of the things about the archaeology reading, which is by no means just me, uh, it's a whole team of extremely talented graduate students, postdoctoral uh, students, um, and also postdoctoral um, fellows, I should say, um, technologists, um, scholars, mid-career, senior, all the way across, all bringing their ideas together in two Skypes every two weeks for five years, and then all the work in between. So it was a lot of work to do this. But uh, all of our technology, all of our material, all of our code is all public and open and accessible and uh, open source and on our GitHub repository. And in uh, Friday, by next week, you'll also find a document that tells you how, if you want to do something like this with something that you're working on, here's what you need to do it. Um, So go to our WordPress site, bookwheel.org, and you'll be able to read more about that. Um, So that would be my my response to that, if that's helpful. Absolutely. No, no, there was just a shared comments and, mm-hmm. uh, and common effort. And thank you very much for, for doing it and persevering in it. I'm just circulating the program for next Friday's um, study day, really, and presentations, uh, uh, which will take place at the Warburg Institute. And I uh, leave uh, to pertinent questions. So we can continue informally. Uh, and uh, let's thank her so much for this. Thank you. Thank you.